Let's take our Bibles this morning. We're going to make our way to the book of Ephesians chapter number 6. Ephesians chapter number 6. We're going to be in verse 14 down through verse 17. And uh, we're coming up on the end of the book. I think we may just have uh, one message left after this. Um, So we're uh, getting ready to um, conclude it very soon. Um, But this particular text is one that is probably pretty well known by many Christians. It is uh, the whole armor of God. That's the title of the message. And so it comes in the midst of this passage about spiritual warfare. And I will remind us a little bit about that. But I want us to look at this text this morning and let's uh, dive into it together. Verse 14, Paul writing to the church in Ephesus says, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. When we think of armor, what is the purpose of armor? Armor is for protection. When does one need armor for protection? When one is engaged in battle, when one is engaged in warfare. I've never been in warfare. Closest I ever got to warfare was paintball, and you couldn't really call that warfare, right? But I do know how important it is to be protected. At the end of our senior year of high school, they had one of those overnight lock-ins, you know, where all the seniors get to hang out and stay at the school all night, and teachers have activities and things planned, and just to have one last time with friends and uh, enjoy it together, and one of those activities was paintball, and this was out on the soccer field. They had a bunch of barriers set up, and one team on one end, one team on the other. You had goggles to protect your eyes, but other than that, you had no protection. And uh, going into that battle with no kind of protection, paintballs, they're not lethal, but if you get hit wrong, it'll hurt, right? And uh, one of my teammates, who apparently had no clue what he was doing, as soon as they said go, I accidentally shot me in the back of the head, and I didn't have any helmet on or anything. He said, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. I'm like, yeah, I bet you didn't. I still kind of hold that against him today. I'm just teasing. Well, that hurt incredibly. That ruined the whole rest of the match for me. I wish I'd had a helmet. Helmet would have protected me for that. One may survive not having protection in paintball, but no protection in a lethal scenario. It's non-negotiable. Entering the battlefield unprotected puts you at great risk of being wounded or killed, and that's why mankind today continues to advance weaponry and armor to give better protection and better advancement. And, and so the goal of armor is to keep the soldier protected when under attack, when taking hits from the enemy. Now Paul in our text, he points out the importance of being armored up for warfare. But he's not talking about physical warfare. He's talking about spiritual warfare. Every Christian is engaged in spiritual warfare, whether you realize it or not. Spiritual warfare encompasses the entirety of this world and reaches into your life. 
And so Paul made clear that we're engaged in this warfare and that we need the Lord's strength for this warfare and that we need to be properly equipped for the battle. He revealed to us the enemy that is working behind the scenes and how they work. And so our text today is a continuation of that spiritual warfare that we're all a part of. And if we're in this warfare, if we're soldiers of the king, we need to have armor. We need to be equipped. We need to be ready. We need to be engaged in this battle. Paul needed this armor. The Ephesians needed this armor. Every Christian in every generation until history ends needs this armor. So what does Paul reveal to us in our text? Notice with me two overall headings here today, and we'll look at points below. But the first thing I want to point out to us this morning is that we must be resolved to stand in the battle. We must be resolved to stand in the battle. This needs to be a conviction of our own heart that I'm not going to just take hit after hit after hit, but I am actually going to be active in this Christian warfare. I'm going to stand, just as Paul says here. You notice that he repeats this imperative to us to stand. Why is that? Well, two things I want to bring to your attention. One is that the assault in this warfare is constant. There's never a time when the warfare just has a ceasefire. Satan knows no such thing as a ceasefire. No time of peace. It is warfare. And as you look through this text, four times in our text from beginning of verse 10, the believer is called to stand. Stand. Withstand in the evil day. And here in verse 14, he says it again. Stand, therefore. Stand, therefore. Now, recall the reason and resolve for this standing in this text, verse 10 through verse 13. Just bring to your remembrance, let me read it to you. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and have done all to stand firm. So he continues again. Verse 14, stand, therefore. Stand is the central application the reason is because Satan and his spiritual forces are hard at work, waging war against all that is godly and true. They are powerful. They are intelligent. They are structured and organized. They are systematic. They are persistent. They are supernatural in their power and in their efforts. So when we think about standing, the very act of standing against an enemy is to push back against his attacks. It is to hold the line. It is to hold the line. Not back up or let him through, but to hold the line. We used to play a game as kids called Red Rover, Red Rover. Anybody know what that game is? If you're not careful, you can get hurt during that game. A lot of people got clotheslined. But basically, you had a team of kids who would interlock arms facing another team of kids who would interlock arms and they would challenge someone specific to come on. they say, uh, we challenge you to come over. Red Rover, Red Rover, Red Rover, come on over and see if you can break through the, the wall, right? And so as that person would run in, we would interlock arms and try to hold the line and wouldn't let them through. 
Now, if they were super big and strong, they might break through. But if they were little and the line was stronger, you talk about you better watch out, right? You're going to bounce off. In a sense, spiritual warfare calls us to stand in this way. Spiritual forces push against the church, against the gospel, against all that is godly and true. And the church is not called to cower and hide, but to stand. To stand against the forces of darkness. To stand, but not only just hold the ground, we're also offensive in our measures and pushing forward. Because we have the power to do that in Christ. Why are they so persistent in this battle? Well, first they understand that these forces of darkness... They hate God. They don't just dislike God, they hate Him. Because they hate God, guess who else they hate? They hate all Christians. They hate that which is godly, anything that is of God and for God. We think of even those who are lost in their sin. What does it teach us about those who are bound in their depravity? They are at enmity with Christ. They are not friendly towards Christ, although they may think they are. In their sinful nature, they are at enmity with Him. But secondly, since they hate God, they desire to to disrupt, distort, and destroy all that is godly. They long to infiltrate the life of Christians to wreak havoc on their spiritual life. Spiritual warfare is personal and individual. It's in your life. It's in your home. The enemy looks to sneak in, bring in doubt and distractions and all forms of deception. Christian, you as an individual believer must resolve to stand in your Christian life by taking heed to your own spiritual life, paying attention to it. Paul said it this way to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 10, 12, he said to them, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. Do you know when you are most prone to fall? It's when you least expect it. It's when you think that you're standing pretty well that you are more vulnerable to falling, more vulnerable to attack and giving heed to such. Temptations come in various forms and often take us by surprise. I like this quote by John Owen. He kind of encompasses the clever nature of this. He says, Temptations will have a season wherein their solicitations will be more urgent, their reasonings more plausible, their pretenses more glorious, Hopes of recovery more appealing. Opportunities more broad and opened. The doers of evil made more beautiful than ever they have been. That is the nature of deception. And so they aim to infiltrate the Christian individual. They aim to infiltrate the Christian family. To erode the strength of godly homes because the biblical family is the foundation for the church and society. They aim to infiltrate the local church, seeking to divide and conquer in whatever way they can. Sneaking in false doctrine, sneaking in or or cultivating or, or enticing divisive attitudes and such. They work in so many ways. And so, so much could be said about this, and we have said in the previous message. But the point for us here in this, in this opening, opening word, really, this opening verse, is this. It is to stand firm against the enemy and his attacks. Because the stakes of this warfare are so incredibly high. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 13. We must stand. But notice with me, letter B here, is that not only do we see that this assault 
Uh, in this warfare, it's constant, it's ongoing, it's persistent. But I want you to know this. The victory for this warfare is Christ. And this is why we stand, because we already have victory in Him. We're not standing to go get victory for this world. He's already purchased it. He already obtained it. He is the victor. Now, while there is a progressive nature to which this warfare unfolds in history, by right, Christ has already guaranteed the victory. When we think about how great our enemy is, how can we stand with any kind of confidence that we can overcome and have victory in this Christian life? We do so because Christ has already taken the stand. He's already held his ground. He's already marching forward. He's already won the victory on our behalf. And we see this victory in a twofold way. First, we need to understand that Christ, He's won the victory permanently by means of His death and resurrection. His redemptive work is the guarantee of victory today. You know that, church, right? Where would we be if Christ had died but He's still in the tomb? We'd have no victory. Darkness would have prevailed. But He's not in the tomb, is He? Where would we be if there was no real atonement for sin, that the issue of sin, the problem of sin, had not been truly taken care of on the cross? We would be hopeless. We would have no victory. But Christ, understand, He has paid for sin. He has atoned for sinners. And He has risen from the dead. He is indeed the victor today. Make no mistake about that. Christ has won the victory And He now calls us to live from the victory that we have in Him. But another aspect of this is that we see that Christ manifested a life in His own own, uh, earthly life of standing against the enemy in His life and ministry. Let's think about Him for a moment. Did Christ ever experience any assaults in His life before He died? Oh, you just read the Gospels. That's pretty much all it is, right? Right? One after another, we think of Satan himself coming to tempt him, Matthew 4, Luke 4, how Satan comes, and you understand this is Satan himself, not one of his minions, but himself, Lucifer, him, the main one, the leader, he comes to to Jesus to tempt him and try to allure him and try to get him off track, right? The forces of darkness worked heavy against Jesus throughout his life and ministry all the way up to his death. But beyond just those spiritual forces, we think of all the evil traps and attacks from his own people, the Jews. How many times did the Jews seek to entrap Jesus in some sort of a sin or missaying of something or some kind of a false doctrine they wanted wanted to try to catch him in? Did he ever succumb to even one of those assaults? Never. Never. You see, Jesus lived the perfect life. He is the life that is the model for all of us. And here's the point I'm getting at, is that his life is the perfect display of the armor of God worn day by day. All of these armor pieces, they are the picture of Jesus in his entirety living his life in this world. Now this brings us to see the example of Christ for our own application. 
and the armor that Paul calls the Christian to put on. You see, this call to stand and put on the armor is a call to engage the enemy like Christ. Paul's description here of this armor, it's not only from the clear illustration of the Roman soldier in his day. I gave you a little handout in your, in your notes so you can kind of see imagery, what that looked like, the armor of the Roman soldier. But it goes deeper than just the Roman soldier. Paul's thoughts are even more deeply rooted all the way back into the Old Testament. The Old Testament describes the Lord as being clothed in armor of similar nature. Isaiah writes of Christ, the Messiah. Isaiah 11.5, he says, Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins, using this armor imagery. Later, Isaiah also writes of the Lord in Isaiah 59.17, He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? You see, the Lord is clearly shown in the Old Testament as, and in the New as a mighty warrior of battle. He is a warrior God. He's a God who wins. So while the armor Paul mentions has connection to the imagery of the Roman soldier in his day, deeply rooted in Paul's thoughts is the Lord Jesus as the mighty warrior. Because Jesus is the thread woven through all of Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, you see Jesus in all of the Bible. And so the call to put on the whole armor of God is summed up in this way to the Roman church. Roman, I love this. Romans 13, 14. Listen to this. He says, but put on who? The Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So as we come into this text, we notice that Paul is breaking down this armor in more detail for the daily life of the Christian. But Christian, if you are truly to wear it, If you truly are to wear this armor, you need to be resolved to stand in the battle. If you don't have a conviction, well, I'm I'm not going to stand. I'm just going to kind of go with the flow. You open yourself up to the attack of the enemy. And don't be surprised when that enemy attacks and wreaks havoc in your life because you chose not to stand. You chose not to stand. We must have a resolve. So that leads me to number two. Number two, in our notes this morning, we must be ready to stand in the battle. We must be ready. So to be ready, what do you think we need to be ready? We need the armor, right? You're going to be ready to fight. You've got to have the armor on to fight. You don't run off into battle without this armor. You don't run off into it without being prepared. And so we look at this individually. We'll look at these pieces together, and you can follow along and and see the image I gave you, and and I pray it all come together for you. But notice with me the first thing we are to put on. He calls upon them to put on the belt of truth. The belt of truth. Verse number 14. Paul says to them to stand, having fastened on the belt of truth. Truth, or some translations render this girded your loins with truth. So, what is this belt of truth? The Roman soldier, or many soldiers in ancient days, they mostly wore a type of flowing garment, right? A tunic. And for the soldier to be able to move swiftly and engage in combat, 
their clothing needed to be secured to keep it from flapping and distracting and obstructing their movement. So the, the Roman's soldier's leather belt supported and protected his, his lower abdomen, gathering his tunic together, and it also sometimes held his sword. Sometimes it was held with an over-the-shoulder strap, but sometimes the belt held the sword. And so it secured his garment for battle in a similar way we would use a belt, right? I don't know about you, but i got to have a belt. If I don't have a belt, I'm in trouble. It's amazing how I have to keep buying new belts the older I get. I don't know what's happening. I keep telling my wife they keep shrinking. But leather don't shrink, does it? What exactly does Paul have in mind here when he refers to this belt of truth? There's a couple of different interpretations I'll, I'll share with you, both of which I think are viable, they are true, but they're, and they can be applicable. Some, such as Martin Lloyd-Jones, great preacher of not long ago, read this to mean that the belt of truth is the foundational truth and authority of God's word. That would be God's word objectively. Others, such as John Calvin, read this to refer to inner truth as far as personal integrity, sincerity of heart, truthfulness in motives and actions. While both of those interpretations are true in general, I think there's another interpretation that more captures Paul's thought. I'll share a couple quotes from Charles Hodge in his commentary. He says of this belt of truth, but it means truth subjectively considered. That is, the knowledge and belief of the truth. This is the first and indispensable qualification for a Christian soldier. To enter on this spiritual conflict, ignorant or doubting, would be to enter battle blind and lame. As the girdle gives strength and freedom of action, and therefore confidence, so does the truth when spiritually apprehended and believed. I would agree with that. That this belt of truth is knowledge of the truth and believing in the truth. Because to know truth and believe truth, you cannot engage in a spiritual battle without knowing truth and believing the truth, which is the foundation, really, of what the battle is all about. Jesus put it this way to those who had believed on him. John 8, 31 and 32, he said, So Jesus said to the Jews who believed on him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will do what? Set you free. The enemy wants to bind you, but truth is what frees you. So to put on the belt of truth is to know the truth and believe the truth in your heart. It is to have confidence in the truth. And that's one of the great great uh, battlegrounds of today. It is about truth. What is right? What is true, right? Our society is so, so declining, they don't even know what a woman is. What bathroom to go to? Friend, basic truth. I'm, not, I'm talking about God's truth, but some of those... Fundamental truths. You gotta know, that's kind of common sense stuff, basic biology. But I'm not even deeper, the truths of God. Why, why do we oppose these sorts of things? Because God has revealed what truth is. And we don't just take it at, as some, something that, that is random, but it's a conviction in our heart, it's a belief, it's something that holds us. If you don't know the truth, friend, You're not ready for the battle. If you don't believe the truth, you're not ready for the battle. 
You must know and believe the truth of the gospel and all of what God has given in his inspired revelation. Charles Hodge again comments here. He says, Nothing but the truth of God, clearly understood and cordially embraced, will enable him to keep his feet for a moment before these celestial potentates. Reason, tradition, speculative conviction, dead orthodoxy are a girdle of spiderwebs. They give way at the first onset. Truth alone, as abiding in the mind in the form of divine knowledge, can give strength or confidence even in the ordinary conflicts of the Christian life, much more in any really evil day. Because that's exactly what you see many doing. They're forsaking the Word of God, the truth of God, for reason, for tradition, for intellectual ideas, philosophy. But what we find is that knowing truth and believing truth is the practice of the Christian, is the belt. You're to put on it. That was the practice of Jesus. When Jesus was tempted by the devil, what was his response to him? He quoted the word of God three times. And in one of those quotes, what did he tell him? He said to Satan, man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that comes from the mouth of God. Christian, is this your conviction today? Do you know the truth? You know what you believe and why you believe it. Are you confident in the truth? If not, the enemy has a great advantage over you. Put on the belt of truth today. Letter B, notice that we are to put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness. He says in verse 14 again, having put on to stand, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, what is this breastplate and what does it do? The breastplate covered the soldier's vital organs, covered his chest, covers your heart, your lungs, those vital organs you need to live and breathe, right? Without the breastplate, a soldier was extremely vulnerable to a mortal wound from the enemy. No soldier went into battle without a breastplate, and neither should we in our spiritual warfare. You say, well, now what does Paul refer to by this breastplate of righteousness? Now, some view this as the imputed righteousness, and I will, I will, I will convey that uh, it is true. We must have the imputed righteousness if we're ever to fight in this battle. If you don't have the imputed righteousness of Christ, you're, not, you're on the wrong team. You're on the wrong side. Imputed righteousness is salvation. It is, it is that Christ's righteousness has been applied to my account before God because of the gospel, because of the substitutionary work with Christ. The reality is, without that, we don't have any righteousness of our own, right? the prophet, of, prophet Isaiah say? He said, of our own righteousness and our sinful condition, nothing but filthy rags. Even the good things that we do, that we think are good, without Christ, filthy rags before God. Our sin nature has corrupted and corroded every aspect of our being. And so that's why the gospel, Christ's accomplished work, has imputed righteousness to his people who believe. And I thank the Lord for this righteousness. But when Satan assaults me with an accusation of how wretched I am in my flesh, I appeal to the righteousness of Christ. I know I'm not righteous. I know that my flesh is corrupt. This was Luther's response too. He said, when Satan tells me I am a sinner, he comforts me immeasurably since Christ died for sinners. What a great thought. 
We are clothed with the righteousness of Christ, and we have confidence in His righteousness. But understand that this text is not about the imputation of Christ's righteousness and justification, although that's the foundation for it. I want to make that clear, because you can't do anything outside of that. These Ephesians have experienced that imputation of righteousness. They know what it is to know Christ. Paul uh, is calling on them in an applicational way to act, to apply, to put on this breastplate of righteousness. You don't daily put on Christ's imputed righteousness. That happened the moment you're saved. This is a practical living aspect. Remember, he told them previously the same principle in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24. He told the Ephesians to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So this call is a call to the Christian to live outwardly what you are inwardly. The true Christian grows in holy living, manifesting righteousness because they have been supernaturally changed inside. Even though I'm at war with my flesh, you understand that we have been created unto what? Good works. Which God has before ordained that we walk in them. 1 John 2.29 The apostle writes, If you know that he is righteous... You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See, the people who practice true righteousness in life are God's people. Because nobody else has righteousness outside of that. And notice that this righteousness in our life, it is evidence of the new birth. It is evidence of being born again of God. So so putting on this breastplate of righteousness is living out what you are in Christ. And this is how you protect your heart and life in this warfare. Aim and follow after Christ and His righteousness in how you live. Letter C, notice that we are to put on the shoes of the gospel. The shoes of the gospel. Verse 15, this footwear. Everyone needs the right footwear for the right occasion, right? Any of y'all walk in here in tennis shoes, basketball shoes? Maybe you did. When I think of tennis shoes, I'm talking about cleats. I'm not talking about, you know, if you're wearing tennis shoes, that's fine. I'm not, I'm not saying anything against that. Hiking boots. You go to, the, go to the shoe store, what do you see? You've got a different kind of shoe for everything, right? Mountain boots, skiing kind of boots, basketball shoes, golf shoes, soccer shoes, beach shoes, football shoes. Climbing shoes. Why all these shoes? Why do we need all these, right? They all have a different purpose to them, don't they? Different purpose to them. They're made differently to accomplish a desired end. And so the Roman soldier, he had his own kind of shoe too, right? Their footwear had to be particular. Like most footwear in that day and time, they were a form of sandal. Not the kind of beach sandals that we would pick up and, you know, go leisurely hang around at the beach. But their sandals had to be specifically made for battle. They had soles that were thickly studded with hobnails. These kinds of sandals enabled the soldier to move quickly and to stick into the ground to keep them from slipping when in hand-to-hand combat in order to stand against the opposition that was pushing against them, right? They had to wear these shoes all the time. They didn't have time to go change their shoes if a conflict arrives. They're always in them. 
They wore them to be ready for any kind of conflict. Now, this is the imagery here. Verse 15 to the Ephesians, he says, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. You understand, we're not engaged in physical hand-to-hand combat. What then could Paul be meaning here? Well, again, there's an Old Testament allusion. Isaiah 52 and verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Christian, did you know that you have beautiful feet? I'm not one that likes to look at feet. But Christian's feet are beautiful. Why is that? Because with our feet we carry the gospel of peace. And Isaiah says, how beautiful. How beautiful are the feet of those who carry this message. And here's what I want you to see with this Christian. That you are a messenger of the gospel of peace. Every Christian is, not just some. Not just the guy in the pulpit. Every single one of you in Christ, you are a messenger of the gospel. All of us are called to this. Every single one of us. And as messengers of the gospel, the message of Christ, it makes one ready for this spiritual warfare against evil. Well, how so? First, understand that the gospel has given us peace in Christ as we face a hostile enemy. Has the gospel given us peace? Absolutely it has. Absolutely it has. You see, it doesn't matter how vicious or how dangerous our enemy appears to be, the Christian can have peace despite all of that. Why is that? Because the Christian is secure in the sovereign hand of God, and nothing can change that. Though Satan would love to steal your soul, he can't do it. He can't. Though he would love to to absolutely destroy you and eradicate you, he can't do that. You are safe in the Father's hands. You are safe in Him. Hebrews 13.6 says, So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. You see, the Hebrews were under persecution in the midst of, of a hostile battle. And so he's writing to them and encouraging them, Rejoice with confidence in this. And peace, you are in the Lord's hands. Don't fear what man can do to you. That's one reason we have peace. But secondly, we have peace in taking the gospel to the enemy because we know the power of the gospel and that it never fails in its mission. It doesn't fail. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We look at our culture, we look at our world around us, and there is a lot of people who are very evident that they are vicious enemies of Christ. But I'm here to tell you that even those vicious enemies can be humbled and changed by the gospel of Jesus. There is no one so evil and wicked that they are beyond God's saving power. Aren't you thankful for that? God's grace is supernatural. See, the battlefield is everywhere, 
we are in this world. And the gospel is what gives us ready feet to, to engage in, in the battle and, and to stand firm and to be quick and, and to, to declare the message that, that changes lives. By this we stand firm. So we ask ourselves, are we wearing these gospel shoes? Are we gospel ready on a day-to-day basis? Come to this next piece of equipment that is so vital as well. Notice what Paul says to them in verse 16. We are to take up the shield of faith. Take up the shield of faith. Verse 16, he says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. You see, this piece of armor is one of the easier ones probably we could apply. We're all familiar with the purpose of a shield, right? A shield is used to defend yourself against various forms of attack. The Romans had shields that they carried. Now, these weren't small little shields like Captain America's saucer, you know, he throws around, but this particular shield was quite large. Typically, it was about four feet by two feet, sometimes bigger, but this was the typical size, which gave enough area to cover the whole body as they were able to snug up behind it. The shield was greatly needed for defense against arrows and daggers. And and notice how Paul applies that to their need for the shield. He says, we need the shield with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. You see, these flaming darts in ancient times were some of the most dangerous weapons in battle. They were arrows dipped in pitch or some other flammable substance, set on fire, and then thrown or shot at the enemy. You've probably seen some of that kind of thing in movies that portray old battles, you know, a big shower of flaming arrows coming down on one side of the force. And so these arrows would not only wound them, but they would also burn them and set on fire what they struck. But think about this for a moment. How vicious is this imagery of Satan's assault upon God's people? His flaming arrows are often showered over the believer, seeking to wound them deeply in the battle. Charles Hodge again comments, and I share this with you because it was, I just thought it was very fitting. He says, It is common experience of the people of God that at times horrible thoughts, unholy, blasphemous, skeptical, malignant, crowd upon the mind which cannot be accounted for on any ordinary law of mental action which cannot be dislodged. They stick like burning arrows and fill the soul with agony. There are others which enkindle passion, inflame ambition, excite cupidity, pride, discontent, or vanity, producing a flame which our deceitful heart is not so prompt to extinguish and which is often allowed to burn until it produces great injury or even destruction. You ever had thoughts just plague you and they seem to come out of nowhere? Welcome to spiritual warfare. Doubt, deception, these things that he lists here. So how do we extinguish these flaming flaming darts, these flaming arrows... Aimed at us. What does Paul say that you need to extinguish them? He says it's the shield of what? Faith. 
The shield of faith. So it's not just some physical shield. It's, it's a shield of faith because faith is essential. It's an essential element to the whole of the Christian life. It is the means of victory for us. John said it in 1 John 5, 4, for everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. And do you notice that Paul says in all circumstances, or above all, take this shield. Take this shield. Of faith. Well, how is it that our faith gives us the victory here? Is, is it become somehow I, I have a certain level of belief that's better than other people's level of belief? What, what is it about faith? You see, faith, the power of faith is not, not in us, it's in the object of our faith. Who is the object of our faith to which we trust as a shield? It is the Lord. You, you understand that, that faith itself is the gift of the Lord. And we exercise it in the Lord. So, so it is not about what, it's about who. The Lord is the object of our faith that shields us and protects us against the enemy's assaults. David always mentioned this in his Psalms. He says in Psalm 115.11, You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Christian, I have no shield except Christ. He is my shield. I'm hopeless against the enemy without him. And faith in him, trusting in him, is that shield for me. Because faith in any other source is no shield at all. Is it? Here may be one reason many succumb to Satan's flaming darts. They look to this and look to that, all the while finally coming to the Lord later. Looking to him later, trusting him later rather than at the first. Christian, earnestly plead with Him and trust in Him to protect you and deliver you. Point your faith to Christ in this warfare. And lastly, but certainly not leastly, wait, never mind, i got two more. Don't get excited. Two more, very quickly. He says, put on the helmet of salvation. Actually, really, I love this one too. I love all of them, but certain, certain ones stick out to you. He says in verse 17, put on the helmet, take the helmet of salvation. We're all aware of what a helmet's for, right? The Roman helmet was made of iron and, or bronze. Had cheek guards coming down the side. Very heavy. Most of them had some kind of a sponge inside to help bear the weight on their head. You imagine carrying a big piece of metal over your head. Not much could penetrate that helmet for good reason. A blow to the head is about certain death. But what's Paul have in mind here? I'll tell you what Paul has in mind with the helmet. He has the mind in mind. You catch that? He has the mind in mind. Your thoughts, your thinking. Why is that? Because how you think affects how you live. This is why Paul so greatly urged the Christians in Rome to pay attention to their minds. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Mind is crucial here. How you think matters. The thinking of the Christian should be set upon the eternal above the temporal, but this brings us to the spiritual aspect of our life where really it's foundational. What aspect of the mind does he have specifically mentioned here? Salvation. It's the helmet of salvation. 
You understand that every Christian's assurance of his salvation is experienced in his mind. When you doubt, where are you experiencing that doubt? Right here. When you're confident, where are you experiencing that confidence? Right here. In your mind. And do you know what one of the greatest things the devil can do is to get a Christian to doubt that he's saved and keep him doubting? One of the other greatest things he can do is get a non-Christian to think he's saved and keep him thinking that way. Two sides of that coin. Paul mentioned this same truth to the Thessalonians in that church. 1 Thessalonians 5, 8. Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. You know how most people think of that? Salvation's just, well, it's a hope. I hope I get there. That's not the biblical meaning of hope. Hope is a confident expectation, not a questionable anticipation. Hope is not, oh, I hope I'm saved. Hope is, I know I'm saved. I know my future. I know it. And why do I know this? Because of Christ. Christ and what He has shown me in the Scriptures. How do we have any confidence in our salvation? Because God shows us and tells us of our salvation plainly in the Word of God and confirms that with assurance in our hearts. Listen to this text. Romans chapter 8. This is one of great Great confidence for myself, and I think it applies to the hope of salvation. I want you to see this. Romans 8 and verse 28 through verse 34 for a moment. Notice what he says here to these Christians in Rome. He says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. That's quoted a lot. A lot of times out of context. Read the rest. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's what many call the golden chain of salvation. This is the this is the order of salvation from eternity to the future, past to the future. Verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is it at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us? And you go on through the rest of the chapter how Paul describes the deep love of God for His people that nothing can change it, nothing can separate them from His love. And this is all tied into His eternal plan of redemption in Christ. If God set His eternal love and salvation on you then, it hasn't changed now and it ain't going to change forever. It's eternal. Those whom He called, He justified. Those whom He justified, He glorified. When's glorification? It's at the end, isn't it? My assurance rests in this great promise that God is sovereign and He has provided it in Jesus 
When Satan, one of the songs we sing, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Christian, this is your confidence and courage. This is your assurance. This helmet is vital. Do you this morning have confidence in your salvation? Do you know today that your faith is in Christ alone? Or are you looking at something else? You think you're somehow going to get good enough, or I'm going to change this, I'll turn over this leaf. Do you think your baptism is what saves you? Do you think being in church is what saves you? What are you actually trusting in? If it's anything other than Christ alone, you're trusting in the wrong thing. It is only Christ. You must have this assurance. Put on this helmet of salvation in Christ alone. Now, lastly, I got it right this time. Take up the sword of the Spirit. Take up the sword of the Spirit. You look at verse 17, the latter part of this verse. He says to them, to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, all the pieces of armor that we've looked at, what have they been primarily? They've been defensive, right? Protection, protection, protection. But the sword is offensive. It's used to slay the enemy by cutting them or stabbing them. The Romans, they they always had their sword at their side, ready to engage offensively. And likewise, the Christian is called to take up the sword. Not a physical one, but a spiritual one. The sword of the Spirit which is the Word of God, because the Word of God has come through who? The Holy Spirit, right? The sword of the Spirit, differing from the belt of truth, which is knowing and believing the truth, the sword of the Spirit puts into action the usage of the truth. It's using the truth. Not just holding it and having it, but using the truth. The Greek term here for word, Paul usually uses the Greek word logos. But here he uses rhema. It refers to that which is said. It is the spoken expression or statement of the word of God. And so this is the word of God spoken, not just merely written. Remember, in Paul's day, they didn't have printed Bibles like us, did they? We're so blessed to have it. The scripture was still being written in Paul's day. And although the whole Bible we have today is the sword of the Spirit, we are to take it up. Is the central point, but it's to be spoken and used, not just held on to. Because a sword kept in its sheath does not advance the soldier forward, does it? Hebrews 4.12, one final verse I'll read to you. You can't skip this verse for this particular text. Hebrews 4.12, you look at this. The author writes, for the word of God is living active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You understand that we have a weapon of warfare that exceeds all other things in this world. So our call is to read it, meditate on it, pray it, but declare it. Declare it, because that is, when it's, that is when it's powerful. That is when it's at work in the hearts of people. Through the Scriptures, we see the Word of God being the means of conquering the enemy and consecrating His people. 
John the Apostle wrote of Jesus saying this in his revelation, Revelation 19.15. He says of Christ, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. You notice what comes from his mouth? It's a sharp sword which strikes down the nation. What is that sword? What comes out of his mouth? It's his word. The Word of God, you understand, it cripples empires. Not by means of physical power, but by means of spiritual transformation. And not only that, the Word of God is cultivating to His people, making us more and more like Him. The psalmist said in Psalm 119.11, I have stored up your Word in my heart. Why? So that I might not sin against you. So Christian, this warfare that we've looked at in this passage of Ephesians, it is real and it is serious. The stakes are high and we're engaged in it. We need the whole armor of God. Not just a piece here or there. You don't need, well, I'll just take the shield and not take the belt of truth. No, you need all of it. There's a reason, Paul says twice, take the whole armor of God. The helmet, the shoes, the shield, the breastplate, the girdle. The sword, all of it. Are you resolved to stand? Are you ready to stand? Put on the armor. And today, if you're still yet in your unbelief, you do not know Christ, understand that the gospel message of Jesus, it is your only salvation. The Bible calls all sinners everywhere, repent and believe the gospel. If you don't, you will endure the wrath of God. Because he's already won and he's going to execute his justice one day. Repent and believe on him. Trust in him today and know of a surety of your salvation so that you'll be on the winning side. Let us stand to our feet as we close in a closing song. Father, we bow before you this morning and thank you, Lord, for... This great opportunity that we have to gather with your people. We thank you for the message of this text. Sometimes we just forget that we are engaged in spiritual warfare. You've called us to stand. Help us to obey you in standing. Help us to obey you in putting on the whole armor of God, for we desperately need it day by day so that we may live victoriously, glorify you, and be the Christian that we ought to be. If there is one undone in their sin here today, I pray that you convict them, draw them, save them as only you can by your divine power. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.